From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Political Perspectives. I'm John Shuck. I'm speaking with Penpa Sering. Penpa Sering is the new representative of His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the Office of Tibet, based in Washington, D.C. He was elected to this post in May of 2016. Previously, he was a member of the Tibetan Parliament in exile, where he served as Speaker since 2011. On December 7th, he addressed the Congressional Executive Commission on China on Capitol Hill regarding human rights issues. He was in Portland over the weekend, meeting with Portland's Tibetan community. He stopped by KBOO to speak about Tibet, human rights, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Welcome, Pempasering, to the United States and to Portland. Thank you so much. It's good to be in Portland. Tell me a little bit about your, your role as representative of His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the Office of Tibet in Washington. Uh, what will you do? Uh, as representative of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, uh, I also uh, focus on the visions of His Holiness. Um, His Holiness always says that being one human being out of the 7.4 billion human beings on this world, he is just an ordinary human being and a Buddhist monk. So he promotes uh, moral values, which is deteriorating around the world. And uh, all these problems among younger generation and, uh, you know, between people, between different races and uh, between um, different issues, you know, stems from uh, the lack of... Uh, education in, uh, on moral values in the schools. Because the school curriculums these days are focused more on materialism and uh, too much into individualism. Uh, that is one uh, the most important uh, vision of His Holiness. And the second is, as a Buddhist monk, he's a religious person, so he uh, promotes interreligious harmony. Uh, the very reason why religion is in this world is to promote more peace and compassion and love uh, amongst uh, people, amongst different uh, living beings and uh, in harmony with nature. But uh, on the other hand, these days, religion is also becoming a tool for violence, for killings uh, among the same uh, fraternity, you know, coming from the same same. Uh, uh, God or the prophet, you know, people are still killing in the name of religion. So His Holiness strongly believes that religion should be a force to bind people, to bring more of all the basic teachings that all the religions teach, more love, more friendship, more compassion. But uh, so instead, since it's going the other way around, His Holiness meets with leaders from different uh, religious faiths and organizes those kind of conferences and, you know, be an example to the people for interreligious harmony. And third, uh, since he's a Tibetan, then he has the responsibility for the Tibetan people, for the Tibetan issue to be resolved. So that's part, um, and also His Holiness also uh, has been working with scientists for a very long time, for more than three decades, on uh, particularly relating Tibetan Buddhism with psychology, which is a highly developed, uh, uh, you know, uh, studies conducted by Indian masters uh, way back uh, for more than 2,000 years. And these are still very relevant um, and also on quantum physics and uh, neuroscience. These are very, very related to 
Buddhism, and Buddhism, in fact, has much, much more lead than modern science in this area. So he's trying to connect science and religion. Yeah, he wrote a book, um, the, the the Universe and an Atom, I believe yes. it was. Yes, that's yeah, true. I read that. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's very, very, very uh, similar to what science says about human evolution. Yeah. Your role is to uh, be uh, a spokesman for him and for his positions? So work in these areas, not very directly, but to facilitate, you know, meet with people from these areas and see how we can work together. But my role is also that of the representative of Central Tibetan Administration, which is the administration of Tibetans in exile. So we have to represent the, represent the Tibetans in Tibet as to what is happening inside Tibet and uh, make these things known to the outside world and also uh, work for the uh, welfare of the Tibetans in exile. And um, uh, in that sense, uh, our office also have to work with the White House whenever there is a meeting between the United States President and uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, on, and in the same way also with the Prime Minister's office in um, uh, Canada. Uh, then we have to work with the State Department. Um, the, uh, there is a 2002 U.S. Tibet Policy Act passed by the Congress, and uh, the, uh, the act uh, provides that uh, uh, the administration appoints a special uh, coordinator for Tibet in the State Department. As of today, it is undersecretary level, Ms. Sarah Civil. And uh, uh, in the new administration, we, we don't know who would be. We still don't know who the Secretary of State is going to be. And maybe once the Secretary of State's post is filled, we'll know who the um, Deputy Secretary and Undersecretary would be, and particularly uh, someone who would be coordinating on the Tibet issue. Then we also have funding aids from USAID, uh, from PRM, Population, Refugees and Migration, for the Tibetans, and there are also some scholarship programs funded by the State Department for the Tibetans. So we have to liaise with the State Department. Then we also have to work with the Congress um, in both the Senate and the House uh, to gain support for the Tibet, uh, to raise the issue of Tibet uh, in the Congress. Uh, so we do. We have to meet with a lot of uh, leaders in Congress and staffers uh, in the Congress. And uh, then apart from that, of course, we have a growing number of Tibetans in North America. The total number of Tibetans in exile is about 150,000. And out of that, about estimatedly about 25,000 Tibetans are in North America, both U.S. and Canada included. And that is uh, roughly 16% of the Tibetan population in exile. And this number is going to grow. So, And they are all scattered in... Uh, some 30 different states um, in U.S. and Canada, mostly in U.S., about 24 of them. And uh, this is also the reason what brings me to Portland. Tell me about that. Why Portland specifically? Portland, we have a vibrant community of 300, 400 Tibetans uh, living here. They are very well organized. Uh, um, in fact, they are... Uh, there may be the one or two Tibetan associations who are very independent now. They have their own community center with the help of uh, non-Tibetan uh, Americans who helped initially, and the Tibetans also worked very hard to get the 
community center which is debt free and uh, they 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 also uh, have become now uh, um very uh, good uh, contributing part of the community uh, american community in portland uh, you don't find too many tibetans who are jobless who are unemployed everyone does contribute to the uh, society to the community that they live in but at the same time uh, being tibetans they also uh, try to preserve their own identity by le- learning tibetan language uh, culture and religion uh, which has the potential to spread more peace and compassion in this world on december 7th you spoke to the congressional executive uh, commission on China, on Capitol Hill, and you gave a six-minute speech to the commission. And I want to talk about that in in just a second. But before we get to that, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Tibet. Um, The uh, area is actually quite large, uh, nearly a quarter of of China's uh, landmass. Tell us a little bit about the geography and the people of Tibet. Tibet, uh, some people believe that Tibet is a very small country, uh, like Bhutan or something. But... uh, it's a huge country uh, nestled in the north of uh, Himalayas, that is north of India. Uh, it has about 2.13 million square kilometers, uh, which is roughly 30, size, 30 times the size of Austria. And uh, But we are sparsely populated. Uh, we used to call ourselves, our land, the land of cool climb. Uh, or land surrounded by snow mountains because we are, the whole of Tibet is surrounded by you know Himalayas in the west, Karakoram and the, the Himalayas on the south, Karakoram on the uh, west, Kunlun in north, and you know Tibet has the the average altitude of Tibet is about uh, 24 to 25,000 above feet above sea level, so. Westerners started calling wow. Tibet as the roof of the world. It's the highest plateau on the world. And the uh, Asians called Tibet as the water tower of Asia, or the source of Asian rivers. And now, these days, the Chinese environmental scientists call Tibet as the third pole. Uh, the third pole. North okay. Pole and South Pole. Tibet has the largest amount of glaciers and permafrost that feeds all these major rivers that goes into Pakistan, India, Nepal, into Bangladesh, Burma, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, and into China. The two big rivers that go into China, the Yangtze and the Yellow, also originate from Tibet. So some estimate that some 30% of the world population, you know, the, the areas where Tibetan rivers flow are most densely populated uh, areas in the world. So some people estimate that 30% of the world population has something or other to do with rivers that originate from Tibet. So environmentally, uh, not just the political issue of Tibet, for only for the Tibetans, but environmentally, it is vitally important for the whole region. Um, uh, it has uh, the, the climatic uh, conditions on Tibet has a lot of... Uh, uh, consequences on monsoons in India or, you know, the jet streams that flow over the Tibetan plateau uh, also has a lot of uh, uh, implications on climatic conditions in, uh, in many of the neighboring countries. So, In a sense, uh, the Tibetan people are uh, protectors in many respects, and so there's a, a risk uh, <coughs> without stability there of the protection of the environment itself. 
we have been living on that land for centuries, you know, mm-hmm. since time immemorial, and we have learned to live with nature uh, harmoniously. Now, uh, with the occupation of Tibet uh, by the Communist uh, Party of China, uh, you call China today as the factory of the world, and when they, when they can go as far as Africa and Latin America for natural resources to feed all these factories, why not Tibet? But uh, till 2007, when they built a railway across the Tibetan plateau from Qinghai uh, you know, to Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, linking to the mainland China, uh, which at one time people thought it's uh, technologically not possible to do that, but China built that over permafrost and you know all that. And uh, now more and more Chinese are coming in, and it has become much more viable for China to, uh, you know, excavate uh, or exploit Tibet natural resources because Tibet was a virgin land. And now they can carry Tibetan, they can bring in more Chinese into Tibet, which is uh, demographic aggression, and take out Tibet's uh, natural resources. So this, uh, and that too, the all this uh, exploitation of Tibet's natural resources they don't do a feasibility study or environmental impact study as to, you know, what could be the adverse consequences on Tibetan plateau uh, uh, of the human activities that the Communist Party of China is undertaking inside Tibet. Well, what are some of the specific things that uh, China is doing? Are they mining? Yeah, north of uh, Tibet, um, in 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 my father's region called Amdo, they, they have uh, uranium and. Uh, mercury and uh, copper and a lot of other and some parts of central Tibet are also known for gold and things like that so for these factories they also divert rivers Uh, uh, and mercury you know the residues of mercuries Mm -hmm. uh, rest on the river bed uh, that affects the health of uh, uh, people in downstream countries and China is also building a lot of dams on the uh, Mekong River that originates from Tibet till it reaches the boundary of Burma, they have built or uh, there or dams are being built. Some 32 dams are on that river alone. And now Brahmaputra, which is one of the longest river that originate from inside Tibet, but west northwest of Tibet into India and Bangladesh, which uh, goes into the Bay of Bengal. They also now more and more building no building of dams are coming up. And at this place called the Great Bend, where the Brahmaputra flows east and then suddenly takes a U-turn and comes south into India and Bangladesh, uh, the, the China is planning to build a dam that is bigger than the Three Gorges Dam, which is the biggest in the mm-hmm. world. And all these places are seismic zone. You have witnessed, you know, earthquake in Afghanistan. That's the beginning of the Himalayas in that region to Nepal and, you know, in parts of Tibet. So if something happens to that size of a dam, you know, what could be the consequences for the people living downstream is unimaginable. And the level of the number of dams that are being built, they're also thinking of diverting uh, river waters up north into the past area of China. South is a little bit better, but North is getting past because China needs a lot of water to feed that kind of population and also agricultural uh, usage. Um, so these this are very, very uh, 
uh, dangerous. Today we are political refugees, but another 30, 40, 50 years down the line, there might be so many environmental refugees, people having to shift their livelihood from the river water system uh, to other sources of livelihood which may not be suitable to them or not being able to adapt so quickly, you know, so that's a real danger. You're listening to Political Perspectives. I'm John Schuck. My guest is Penpa Sering, the representative of His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the Office of Tibet based in Washington, D.C. He was in Portland over the weekend. Can you give us a history of, of Tibet, uh, especially <clears throat> since uh, 1949? Yeah, Tibet has a recorded history of more than 2,200 years. And uh, during that, this whole period, at least there was a time in uh, between 8th to 10th century when Tibet was a big empire, along with Mongol and Chinese empire. Uh, and at that time, we even conquered the uh, capital of China called Xi'an and also imposed a titular uh, puppet emperor. Uh, but then Tibet disintegrated after... 10th century for two, three centuries, and then the Mongol influence came in Asia when Mongolia was uh, becoming a big empire. Even before Chinese Mongols invaded China, Tibet came under its influence, but there was never ever uh, direct interference by the Mongols in running Tibet. Um, and we developed a very uh, unique relationship with the, with the Mongols who started turning Buddhist. Um, so we became the teachers of Buddhism to the Mongols. Even today, Mongolians look at the Dalai Lama as a spiritual teacher. You must have witnessed this from the last visit of His Holiness to Mongolia. And there's a huge link. You know, the fourth uh, Dalai Lama was also born in Mongolia. Um, so this uh, historical link made us the spiritual leader of the mongols and the mongols became our protectors political and you know uh, demographic uh, protectors so this relationship eventually also transferred on chinese buddhist emperors the uh, uh, manchus who ruled china for several centuries and then the chinese emperors so this relationship continued uh, as priests and patron relationship between the Tibetans, Mongols, Tibetans, Manchus, and Tibetans, Chinese, who ruled China. But Tibet was never, ever directly administered by any country, directly. So in uh, when communism was taking over the whole of the world, starting from Europe to, you know, Soviet Union, and then to China, and then when it started em enveloping Tibet also, because we became part of the great game. Uh, the British India uh, in 1903 and 04 invaded Tibet up to the capital, and then they retreated. Uh, there was an unwritten uh, understanding between, because the Russians were very fearful that British India would come up north through Tibet. And uh, so in that great game of the big empires uh, or colonialists or imperialists those days, Tibet became a victim of Communist Party of China. And then Communist Party started invading Tibet in 1948-49-50, and then we were forced to sign a 17-point agreement in 1951. Uh, if not, the, the, we were threatened to be invaded by force. And we signed that, and we tried to live under that agreement for f eight years. 
from 1951 to 58. But then Chinese uh, renegated on all the provisions of those uh, uh, you know, articles, the 17-point articles, and then His Holiness was forced to flee to India as a refugee in 1959. So since then, uh, we are an, an occupied country under the Communist Party of China. And you have a, uh, an exile government in India. We call ourselves the Central Tibetan Administration. We don't call ourselves the uh, exile government. But then Indian leaders and world leaders and world politicians call us the Tibetan government in exile. Uh, so we make a differentiation there because um, uh, Chinese also call us Tibetan government. We don't recognize the Tibetan government in exile. So whereas okay. we call, technically, we call ourselves the Central Tibetan Administration. So we have uh, our own uh, uh, parliament, which was started way back in 1960, just one year after we came into exile. You can imagine the logistics and the situation and circumstances those days when we first came into exile in 1959, when His Holiness crossed over the Indian border on 31st March 1959. Some 80, 85,000 Tibetans followed him or preceded him. And we were put up in three transit camps in the state of West Bengal and Arunachal Pradesh in northeast of India. And the climatic conditions, are people were not used to the Indian climatic conditions, which were very hot in those areas. And we were not used to Indian way of uh, living or diet and uh, the language and all those. So some little more than 300, 400 people died because of diet problems. And we were slowly put up in the foothills of Himalayas because the only thing we knew was hard labor. And uh, our people, my parents and some people's grandparents worked on the road construction in those areas in the foothills because climatic conditions were a little more suitable. And then the Prime Minister of India requested, uh, asked all the chief ministers because land is still a state subject in, the, in India. And uh, uh, the, in South India where I was born, in a place called Balakupi, that uh, was the first Tibetan resettlement project uh, in 1960 because the chief minister of that state had met with His Holiness in 1956 when His Holiness came to India for the 2500 uh, birth anniversary of the Buddha. So then slowly, slowly, today we are put up in 10 different Indian states in some 45 different locations, big and small, some as big as 16,000 people and some as small as 200, 300 people. And uh, the main livelihood is dry farming, agriculture of one acre per, per person. Now the population has grown up, so we don't even have one, one person, one acre. But uh, the supplementary income comes from selling winter clothing during uh, winter in many parts of India. So that's how we survive. So out of the 150,000 Tibetans in exile, about 90,000 are in India, okay. a little more than 20,000 in Nepal, a few hundreds in uh, Bhutan, between 13 to 15,000 in uh, whole of Europe, uh, Estimated there about 25,000 in whole of North America. We still have an ongoing uh, immigration program in Canada. Um, and we also have uh, ongoing immigration program with Australia. So you find a little more than 3,000 Tibetans in Australia. But the rest of the Tibetans, 150, 30, you find them in some 37 different countries. And still about uh, 6 million are in Tibet itself. That's right. So, yeah. 
Before 2008, we used to receive anything between 3,000 to 3,500 Tibetans uh, from Tibet, um, mostly uh, crossing the Himalayas during winter when there is less patrol and a lot more snow. But it's also very risky. Sometimes you get shot by patrol and sometimes you lose your uh, fingers and toes because of frostbite. And most of them are kids. Hmm. to get education in exile. So they stay back, not knowing whether they will ever meet their family again or not. So these these, uh, these were very difficult circumstances. Then there was widespread peaceful demonstration in the whole of Tibet in 2008, not just the Tibet Autonomous Region, which China designates as Tibet, but in all other Tibetan areas outside Tibet Autonomous Region in Qinghai province, which are... Uh, you know, traditionally uh, Amdo area and other Sichuan, Gansu areas, which are Kham areas. So this uh, led to a lot more restriction from the Chinese side, and there's also fight of influence between India and China on Nepal. So a lot, lot more restriction in Nepal. So these days we receive between 500 to 600 Tibetans um, every year. Now this year. The coming in January 2017, we have this uh, religious teaching by His Holiness called the Kala Chakra teaching, the Wheel of Time teaching, and this is considered very sacred. So a lot of Tibetans come. You know, in 2006, some 10,000 Tibetans came from inside Tibet, and the idea, the the reason why Chinese allowed so many Tibetans to go at that time was that. They thought that maybe His Holiness will say, tell the Tibetans. Of course, His Holiness keeps saying that. So he would he would tell the Tibetans that we are not fighting for independence, and you know, and that might uh, reduce the uh, Tibetans' ability to fight for independence. But mm. on the other hand, of course, apart from this message, uh, there was also a lot of environmental awareness uh, being created by His Holiness, particularly. Uh, Tibetans used to use a lot of animal skins in their dresses as decorations, you know, as piece of ornaments and things like that. And His Holiness asked the Tibetans not to use animal skins, like seal skin mm-hmm. or tiger skin. And all that. So all Tibetans inside Tibet started burning all these valuable clothings that they have cultivated over years. And this became a huge disappointment for Chinese government, what they thought and what turned out was totally different, you know, and then and, and then the later uh, color chakras they they have been restricting the Tibetans. Like this color chakra, many Tibetans who have passport passports were taken back by the Chinese authorities, and uh, some of them who managed to travel up to Nepal or to India, now they are being asked to come back before December end, which means they cannot attend the color chakra teachings. If they don't come back on time, they will suffer. Their families will suffer. And when you say suffer, what do you mean? Or they go through now a lot of punishment. Just on the eighth, another Tibetan from Ngaba area, the Amdo area, which, which witnessed num- the largest number of self-immolations so far, uh, Tashi Rapten, uh, 33 years old, he self-immolated uh, on the eighth, and he died the next day. Um, he's the 145th Tibetan to self-immolate without even hurting one single Chinese civilian or military, just sacrificing your own life, hoping that the Chinese government will pay some attention to the plight of the Tibetans or the international community might, you know, pressurize the Chinese government to help resolve the Tibetan issue. 
that was my next question. Uh, the uh, situation uh, has deteriorated <clears throat> in regards to human rights uh, over the past decades. I would say Tibet is now, apart from, of course, you have um, um, a lot of other uh, situations like Tibet, like North Korea or you know certain other countries in the world. But Tibet is certainly. Uh, I think the Freedom House uh, called the human rights situation in Tibet as the second worst situation in the world, next to Syria at that time. So mm. Tibet is like a huge prison right now. Uh, diplomats, journalists from the free world have no access to Tibet. And even if they are granted access, they are allowed to go to only a few designated areas that Chinese government want to see or either they are followed or, you know, monitored. So it's a very difficult situation. These testimonies were also made by the United States government and some of the uh, leading legislatures are calling for reciprocal access to Tibet. If you allow Chinese diplomats or if the Chinese diplomats can come to any part of the United States, then why not the United States diplomats and officials and journalists and ordinary citizens can have access to Tibet. So even for Tibetans, like my friend here, he's a American Tibetan. Your, your friend here is, uh, is in the studio with us. He is from Portland. I live in his house. He's an uh, American Tibetan. For him to travel to Tibet is a big problem. The Chinese mm. government doesn't issue visa. And even if they do issue sometimes, then they get obstructed at airports and sometimes they are deported back to the United States. You know, just last night I was talking to a group of Tibetans who had similar experiences. So even for American Tibetans, it's not possible to have access to Tibet easily. Uh, but some do manage to go, you know, and the, the situation inside Tibet autonomous region is much more stricter, but the regions outside a little more flexible. Uh, but even then, it's it's very difficult, very difficult. You mentioned His Holiness and his position towards Tibet. He doesn't want Tibet to be necessarily a separate country. Well, what are his interests, and uh, and and do they parallel the interests of the people of Tibet? I mean, yeah. you mentioned that uh, when mm. he said about the the animal skins that everybody did it. So mm. people really follow the Dalai yes. Lama's. Uh, that is where the views. Chinese government failed to understand the Tibetans. They feel that they brought material development to Tibet. And, you know, for Chinese government to resolve any kind of conflict is development, 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 from a very materialistic point of view. They don't mm -hmm. understand the emotional need of the Tibetans. You know, having practiced Buddhism over the last 1,300 years and believing in life after death and so many things very different from atheist China who doesn't believe in any kind of religion. Uh, that is where they failed. If they managed to address the Tibetan need to, Tibetan people's need to, you know, go to monasteries and practice their language and religion and culture, I'm sure there would be much more peace in Tibet. Um, unfortunately, uh, that is not the case. Now, China's policy towards Tibet is very much like the Russian policy towards all its minorities during Soviet Union, you know, providing, of course, the Russian constitution says that the minorities can have the right to self-determination, whereas the Chinese constitution doesn't say that. Uh, but they have provided, by in name, 
some kind of autonomy, whether it's Tibet Autonomous Region or the outside TAR, is Tibetan Autonomous Prefectures, Tibetan Autonomous Counties, and things like that. But they have recognized that it's all contiguous area inhibited by Tibetans in all these areas. So their policy is assimilation. They bring in more and more Chinese into Tibet. This this is the reason why we say we don't have time, because Tibet is huge land-wise, but population is very small. And Chinese population is now, like, I don't know, 1.45 billion people. Mm-hmm. And uh, compared to that, we are nothing. So by if you look at the different minorities also, if you look at Manchuria, you hardly find any Manchus who speak the Manchu language. And along with their language, their culture is also gone because everything is being sinicized. Then you have the Inner Mongolians, what China calls as Inner Mongolians, but they themselves like to call them as Southern Mongolians. In Southern Mongolia, out of the 100% po- population, only 16% are Mongols. And the rest are all Han Chinese, the majority Han Chinese and the Turks. Now in Xinjiang, there's the Uyghur, East Turkestan area, and Tibet. Most of the cities and towns are Chinese majority, including the capital of Tibet, Lhasa. You find more yeah. Chinese than ever. So wherever they can make money, Chinese move in. And that's how they, you know, uh, the, the demographic aggression happens. Of course, you know, civilizations have changed, people have evolved and all that, but all these are state-engineered projects, like moving all the Tibetan nomads into compact communities, which makes it easier for them to politically control the Tibetan because they can't send one Chinese after one Tibetan in the you know, hills and valleys. Uh, so that's how they are, they are trying to change the demography of uh, Tibet and then they're building more railways, more road networks, more airports, not to bring prosperity for the Tibetans, but for China to gain, you know, take out natural resources, bring in more Chinese into Tibet. So another 30, 40, 50 years down the line, if we are not able to go back with a settlement uh, that is mutually beneficial for the Chinese and the Tibetans, then you might find Tibet towns in Tibet, just like you find Chinese towns in Chinatowns in your country, that Tibetans become completely overwhelmed by a majority Han population. That is the reason why His Holiness, looking at the reality of situation, is not asking for independence, mm-hmm. but autonomy uh, with uh, rights to preserve its own language, culture, you know, uh, you know, the environment, the religion, and all that, uh, and leave the defense and you know foreign policy to to China. So that's uh, what we call as the middle way approach, you know, addressing China's sovereignty concerns, uh, but at the same time guaranteeing some kind of rights for the Tibetans to preserve their identity. I'm speaking with Penpa Sering, uh, elected as the representative of His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the Office of Tibet, which is based in Washington, D.C. He's in Portland uh, to talk with uh, many uh, Tibetan exiles, about 300, you said, or so, who live in Portland area. The time, obviously, is on China's side. Yes. They're, they're in no rush. Uh, they want to keep uh, the situation going and just slowly squeeze you out. So what leverage... Uh, do you have uh, as the people of Tibet to be able to stop this squeeze? What, what, what do you hope to get? 
You are uh, right in many ways, but uh, I, uh, you know, also like to positively think in other ways. Uh-huh. Uh, sometimes I jokingly tell our Chinese friends, "Let us see whether the Communist Party of China can outlive the Dalai Lama, or the Dalai Lama can outlive the Chinese Communist Party." Uh-huh. Because Chinese Communist Party, Communist Party today is one of the longest autocratic, authoritarian regime in the world. And they have also a lot of internal problems. We know for a fact that the resolution to the Tibet issue can come only from China. But the reason why we are requesting, urging the governments of the United States or Canada or Europe, anybody from the free world to support us to, is to push the process faster. Uh, but that does not necessarily mean to say that Communist Party will last longer than the Tibetan issue, you know, to be resolved. So we remain uh, uh, positive, we remain hopeful, and we hope that the some sense of some common sense will come to the Chinese leadership. Uh, that the Tibetan issue is one of the easiest issue to be resolved. Uh, his Holiness the Dalai Lama is the key to resolving the Tibetan issue because he is still in good health. He's 81, going to be 82, and he has promised to live up to 100. So there's still <laughs> another, you know, 20, 20, 30 years down the line. Maybe he will not be physically that much capable as he is right now. But then he is one person who can convince the Tibetans inside Tibet that this is the best solution for China and for the Tibetan people. You know, so if China doesn't take this up, uh-huh. one can't imagine you already have 145 Tibetans who self-immolated, who burned themselves to death. And if this Dalai Lama has to die in exile, what could be the emotional reaction inside Tibet? Will that help heal the wounds between the Chinese leadership or the government and the Tibetan people? Or rather, would it make it worse? And under circumstances where, because China is already has passed laws, atheist government who doesn't believe in any kind of religion, they want to be the want to be responsible for the final authorization of recognition of reincarnated lamas inside Tibet. Yeah, yeah they want to they want to be able to have some religious influence, even though they don't care about religion. Of course, it's political, right? Yeah, in fact, they've kidnapped uh, the 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 next uh, what was it, Panchen, Panchen Lama, at, at five years old, and nobody knows. T- tell, talk a little bit about that. We still don't know. The tenth uh, Panchen Lama died in 1989 after he was incarcerated for a very long time under house arrest, detention, torture, and all that. Till Mao Zedong died in 1976. Uh, then he was released, and then he played some very positive role inside Tibet, you know, bringing back uh, Tibetan language as the core and the medium of uh, learning uh, in northeast Tibet, and he wanted to spread it out. But then, unfortunately, a lot of events uh, uh, leading up to his death in 1989, coinciding also with Tiananmen Square massacre and all that. So he died in 1989 under very suspicious circumstances. Uh, We still don't know whether he was poisoned or he had a natural death. And then his reincarnation, um, the Chinese government formed a reincarnation team to recognize his reincarnation, uh, led by Chate Trimbuche, who is an abbot of the uh, Tashilumbu monastery that uh, Panchen Lama belongs traditionally. 
And this Rinpoche, Charya Rinpoche, has always been, has also been in touch with His Holiness Office regarding the selection of possible candidates. And uh, then His Holiness did his divinations and found that uh, um, uh, this young boy, Gendu Chuginima, is the real reincarnation of the 10th Panchen Lama. And His Holiness announced this uh, internationally, and Chinese government didn't like it at all. And then they denounced that, and they followed their own procedure, which supposedly the Chinese Qing emperor in 1793, in one of their edicts, uh, has made uh, made a system to selection through the golden urn. The names of possible candidates are put there. But what we recognize from that selection process is that they have pushed the name that they want selected. Mm-hmm. Because it actually they put form under that name, which comes out by itself after some time. You know, So the Lama had to select that because of the pressure from the Chinese government. So they chose Gansen Nobu, who's different we don't we don't even know the boy selected by uh, his holiness and also concurred by the leader leader of the dele- selection committee uh, his name was there or not but among other names this boy's name was taken and the other boy recognized by his holiness Dalai Lama with his family disappeared at the age of six in uh, nobody has any idea where he nobody might be nobody has any idea or if uh, he's still despite, alive yeah we still don't know whether he's alive or not, and if he's alive, the Chinese government always says he's alive. He's studying. He's getting good education, and he doesn't want to disturb. He do, doesn't want to be disturbed, and uh, uh, so nobody knows. Despite, he, he would be about twenty-five now. He must be about now. Nineteen ninety-six. You said. Yeah, twenty-seven, twenty-eight. Okay. Uh, years old. So they uh, put their own. Uh, Banchen Lama on the Tibetans who's not respected by mm. any Tibetans in Tibet uh, the last time we heard he gave a color chakra teaching and Tibetans were forced to attend that teaching um, even if you go to Lhasa today you won't see the picture of the Banchen that was selected by the Chinese government you will see only pictures of the 10th Banchen Lama because they are not allowed to s- sell pictures of the Benjamin Lama selected by His Holiness. So that is the reaction from the Tibetan side. So even if they choose a next Dalai Lama, now what kind of emotional outbreak this can cause with the Tibetans inside Tibet? It's not just the Tibetans inside Tibet. His Holiness' legacy has extended beyond that. You have the um, Buddhists in uh, Kalmyk, Tuwa, Buryat in Russian republics, then you have the Mongolia, then you have Indians in the Himalayan belt who are culturally very close to Tibetans. Then these days you have so many groups coming from Japan, from Taiwan, Singapore, Vietnam, all these Buddhist countries. And you know how much followers he has. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that um, His, Holy, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is probably one of the most respected uh, people on the planet. Mm. Uh, I mean, he has he comes and meets and, and writes and talks and, and offers uh so much hope to the whole world itself. I'm speaking with Penpa Tsering, uh, representative of His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the Office of Tibet in Washington, D.C., and you spoke uh, on December 7th to the Congressional Executive Commission on China on Capitol Hill, outlining some of 
the desires of the Dalai Lama for the United States government. Of course, we've gone through now an election. Uh, we have new president, new uh, Congress coming up. What uh, what does the Dalai Lama make of our new president-elect Donald Trump? And and what's the situation uh, with the uh, U.S. president so far? Has it been uh, positive? Have they been dragging their feet? No, since uh, 1991, uh, since George Bush Sr., all the presidents of the uh, United States have been meeting with His Holiness. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, with uh, President George Bush Jr. and uh, President Barack Obama, they had met at least four times during their tenure as president of the United States. And uh, uh, we have no bias, of course. We are bipartisan. When it comes to the issue of Tibet, we have support both from Republicans and Democrats, uh, from Senate to House, you know, mm-hmm. so it's bicameral, bipartisan, and we have never taken any sides during the election, aside from what the American Tibetans think. So I have not asked any of them as to who they voted, but it's not my job to do so. And we have good relations with both the Republicans and the Democrats. And uh, in fact, uh, when President Bush was there, he, the 2002 U.S.-Tibet policy was passed, uh, and also with Democratic, uh, you know, uh, majority in uh, House. Nancy Pelosi, Senator Feinstein, they were all big supporters. The Congressional Gold Medal was conferred on His Holiness. So. His Holiness is not uh, uh, overtly concerned about what might happen because uh, you have a very good system in place. America is a place where everybody has their own stake. Uh, They are leaders, but leaders alone cannot take all the decisions. Mm -hmm. Election is one thing. Election During elections, a lot of rhetorics happen and all that. But when it comes to the ground of handling situations on the ground, then you you have to face reality. You can't just be flying over the top. So we are uh, not uh, overtly uh, fearful that something very wrong thing might happen. Uh, you have a very active media, you know, uh, which <laughs> trails every single minute, every step of the way, where, whether things are going right or wrong. You have huge public debates and, you know, public opinion, uh, people coming on streets peacefully if they have any, uh, you know, expressions to be made. So uh, that way, His Holiness is not overtly concerned. He, he believes that uh, uh, President-elect uh, Trump will uh, carry through his job responsibly. And uh, uh, he looks forward to meeting with the president. Is there any indication from President-elect Trump that he will meet with the Dalai Lama? Have you received any communication from him? Right now, uh, our office had no connection with the transition team so far. Uh, And, uh, and of course, uh, we can't reach President-elect as of now. They are all so busy with the transition, uh, you know, positioning people in different posts. Uh, we're also looking at who could be the next Secretary of State and the Under Secretary, and just as I mentioned before, who could be the uh, person responsible for uh, coordinating on the Tibetan issues that's mandated by the U.S. Uh, Tibet Policy Act of 2002. So what are the things that you'd like uh, the incoming administration as well as Congress uh, to do officially? So the ultimate uh, uh, aim of the Tibetan, uh, of His Holiness Dalai Lama and the Tibetans in exile is to resolve the Tibet issue peacefully, non-violently, 
for a mutually beneficial uh, you know, solution both for China and for Tibetans. So this is what uh, we need uh, the U.S. government to impress upon the Chinese leadership that this is good for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's a win-win situation uh, that uh, there should be a resumption of dialogue uh, between the representative of His Holiness Dalai Lama and the Chinese government. So this, this is the key thing. So before that happens, uh, uh, it's, it's important that we send the right signals. So um, like uh, pre- the President-elect Trump, once he, sta- once he takes over the presidency to meet with His Holiness uh, as early as uh, an opportunity provides, this will also send a right signal that he's concerned about the Tibetan issue and also, and also keeping good relations uh, with a world religious leader, uh, you know, who has uh, credibility uh, of thinking of the good of all humanity. Uh, I think that will also bode well for President Trump and his uh, uh, persona. So then, of course, uh, we want the the, uh, uh, U.S. government and the Congress to implement uh, continue implementing the 2002 U.S. Tibet Policy Act by appointing a uh, special rep- uh, rep- uh, the coordinator for Tibet in the in the State Department. Um, now I want to stop mm. for a second because this in 2002 to to do that they made the decision, but they have never implemented that. No, they have. They, that's why we have a undersecretary in the State Department on. Uh, for global affairs, human rights, a lot okay. of responsibilities, but also at the same time responsible as special coordinator for Tibetan issue. So as of today, we have uh, Sarah Sewell, Undersecretary Sarah Sewell, as a special coordinator, and I had the opportunity of meeting her on October 21st, uh, and then uh, on 6th of this month, just before coming to uh, Portland, uh, I met her with several uh, people from like-minded uh, countries, embassies, uh, people from embassies of like-minded countries to work on the Tibet issue together. So it really helps us. We don't we don't need to go to each, each and every single department mm-hmm. uh, individually, but through that office we can reach out to all others, including humanitarian aid uh, for the Tibetans. So this is important. And they also uh, submit... Um, uh, report, a negotiations report uh, on the status of negotiation between China and Tibet uh, from the State Department to the Congress every year. Uh, and this this other thing, um, the Congressional Executive Committee on China, that was that came as an offshoot after China became a member of the World Trade Organization, and then uh, they signed a pact on free trade. Uh, between U.S. and uh, China, that mandated uh, human rights not to be separated from business. That's why Mm. you have the uh, Congressional Economic Cooperation, uh, the uh, Executive Commission on China that reports in detail, you know, from the Congress side uh, to the administration as well as the Congress as to what the administration and the Congress should be doing. So these are some of the... uh, Things these are unbiased reporting by the U.S. government as to what is going on in China, what is going on in Tibet, in Uyghur, in Inner Mongolia, in Hong Kong, in a whole lot of issues that concerns U.S. 
uh, as a policy on human rights, religious freedom, you know, all that. So these are important for us, apart from we saying it. When we say it, it might be looked upon as a propaganda, just like Chinese government is saying so many lies. But we, are always, we always check facts whenever we come out with something. Um, but the United States government doing it and saying it is a different matter. Right. You know, so then, what allies do you have in the U.S. Congress? Uh, we we don't uh, we we don't look at uh, individual. We work mostly with the uh, foreign relations committees of the both the House and the Senate with staffers and leaders. Mm-hmm. We also work with the uh, CECC, just like this this hearing where uh, Chris Smith is the chair and Senator Rubio is the co-chair, and they are also very concerned members in the committee like uh, congressman hulkman and uh, you know walls who was present who were present there during the hearing and uh, we also uh, reach out to the tom lantos human rights commission as uh, the congressman jim mcgowan has been a very active member in that then you also have uh, um, uh, Congressman uh, Joe Pitts, who's resigning by January 2nd, but he has always been very helpful. A new chairman will come in place. And then we also work with the Appropriations Committee. It's not possible with our very limited resources. Uh, Office of Tibet works with International Campaign for Tibet. You know, Together, they have some resources, experience. And we reach out to as many members from these different committees, which has direct link with the Tibet issue. And one final question. We're just about out of time. Pempa Sering uh, is speaking with me. He's the uh, representative of His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the Office of Tibet uh, based in Washington, D.C. Uh, what can U.S. citizens, so those hearing this broadcast today who are interested in, in the plight of justice and the people of Tibet, uh, what, what can you uh, say to them? What would you like? Uh, how can they help? If you love freedom, if you love democracy, if you love justice, then please help us. Uh, we we don't have all of this, you know. Even though Tibet may be remote, you might find that you might feel that Tibet is far off from you and may not be connected directly. But we all must understand in this globalized world that everything is interdependent. Uh, any small event in one part of the world affects other. The more you make an authoritarian regime stronger by kowtowing, bending to them, to their wills, to their commands, uh, then they become much more bolder. You know, so when gov- governments will do whatever they can at their level, but government will react to its people's wishes because people decide who should be in the government. So every single American counts, whether it's to do with Tibet or Uyghur or Inner Mongolia or Chinese people in China or whether it's Korean people in North Korea or whether it's people in the Middle East who are going through a lot of suffering. So anybody who is suffering and anybody who is denied or devoid of all these freedoms Please help guarantee this because every single person's voice matters. Thank you. Thank you. Pempit Sering, uh, he is the uh, representative for the Dalai Lama at the State Department, uh, recently elected to, to this position and, and taking it over. It's uh, very important and a delight to meet you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And good to be in touch with people in Portland. Please support us. Thank you. You've been listening to Political Perspectives. My guest has been Pempa Sering 
who was in Portland over the weekend, visiting with members of the Tibetan community in Portland. Penpasering is the representative of His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the Office of Tibet, based in Washington, D.C. I'm John Schott.